This is a HeadGum Podcast. Andrew, Craig, we're all trying to eat better. We're all trying yeah, to are. eat delicious food at the beginning of the day. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you that a healthy breakfast doesn't have to be boring. Uh, this week's show is brought to you in part by Magic Spoon, who has the amazing flavors you love without all the bad stuff. That sounds good. Bad stuff is bad. It, bad stuff is bad. Good stuff is good. Can you tell me a little bit more about the good stuff in Magic Spoon? <laughs> okay. Magic Spoon is cereal that reminds you of what it was like to eat those wonderful kid cereals that will rot your gut if you are over the age of 26 or so. Sure. <laughs> they have zero grams of sugar, uh, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. Uh, there are only 140 calories in a serving, and it's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. Mm. Um, they got two amazing new flavors this month for a limited time. I'm excited about these. One is cookies and cream. The other is maple waffle. Mm. The most prominent waffle-based cereal that existed doesn't exist anymore. And huh. so Magic Spoon is offering that waffle hookup, and I'm very intrigued about it. <laughs> uh, you can make a custom bundle, including the cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, and cinnamon flavors. Ooh. And if you're listening from Canada, Magic Spoon now ships there as well. You've gotten a chance to eat this food, Andrew. I have. It's good cereal. It tastes like the kid's cereal, but more adult, which... Sounds like I'm making it up as I go, but it... That is literally <laughs> what it tastes it, like. It hits your palate in a way that's like, oh, all the flavor is there, but I am not going to need to go to the dentist about this later. That sounds good to me. And if it sounds <laughs> yeah. good to you, our listeners, you should go to magicspoon.com slash overdue to get the new limited edition cookies and cream, maple waffle, or custom bundle of cereal to try today. Be sure to use the promo code overdue at checkout to save five dollars off your order the offer is now good anywhere in the u.s or canada but only when you use that code at checkout and magic spoon so confident in their product it's got a hundred percent happiness guarantee so if you don't like it for any reason they'll refund your money no questions asked remember get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com overdue and use the code overdue to save five dollars off thanks magic spoon thanks cereal Thank you, Cereal. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. And it's March. It's March. Can you I believe think, it? Remember when, remember when we did intros, when we would talk beforehand, like, oh, I have the intro this week. I have a funny yes. thought that I'm going to base the intro on. Uh-huh. I don't have one, but I was just thinking about, <laughs> remember when we did that? Yeah. We did used to do that. They did sometimes get a little long. They got a, they got a little long. We trimmed them for length and also because we trimmed them for lack of ideas. Also because that. we've done many hundreds of podcast episodes. So now we just have recursive intros that just comment on the intros. Um, yeah, remember when we used to do this thing like six years ago when we were also doing this podcast? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. For people who haven't been listening for the last set eight. 2013 right eight years gee whiz gee willikers 
Uh, every week, one of us reads a book that we've never read before, and we tell the other person about it, and then you, the listener, get to listen along at home and enjoy the ride. Yeah. Yeah. Craig, what did you read this week? I read The Blue Castle by Lucy Maud Montgomery, L.M. Montgomery, to y'all and to her friends. Um, this was a Patreon recommendation from Catherine. Thank you, Catherine, who said, I would like to recommend The Blue Castle by Ella Montgomery. It features my favorite family birthday lunch gone wrong scene of all time. Hmm. Yeah, th- I think that, that... That's a scene archetype. <laughs> I don't know that I have too many that I can draw from. I can't pull them off the top. Like, I guess it would depend on how broad we're making it, but you can definitely have like a family dinner or yeah. some kind of awkward family meeting that turns into a discussion about somebody's like marriage plans or... Yes, it definitely you know, uses that for sure. A lot of hijinks and antics can ensue mm. from those. Speaking of antics, in episode 256 of our glorious show, uh, back in 2017... <laughs> Uh, we did a live show on Anne of Green Gables, who got up to semantics, uh, which is uh, Ellen Montgomery's most best known, most best, best known book, yes. <laughs> most best best most known book. Um, Anne of Green Gables. Oh my god! <laughs> she uh, so that's like the big in, and then this that, that's the big in came out in 1908. She was born uh, in 19, 1874 and died yeah. in 1942. Yeah. And yeah, Anne and the series of books that followed Anne were her biggest books. I think there's another series of books about a Moppet in there. The name I don't recall. <laughs> is, uh, is that the Emily trilogy? Yes, 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 yes. Multiple Moppets. <laughs> it's the Moppet show. It's the Moppet show over here. Streaming on Disney+. Plus. Uh, so you can go back and, and listen to that episode. We do some intro on Montgomery, you know, things... She is one of the most, you know, prominent Canadian writers, I think, due in large part to, at least legacy-wise, due in large part to the success of Anne of Green Gables. Yeah, um, and really put Prince Edward Island on the map. For real. So, you're welcome, Prince Edward Island, <laughs> Canada's smallest province. <laughs> uh, people go up there to see all the Anne sites. And in, in fact, the Blue Castle is one of the few novels or any kind of stories that she ever wrote that was not... um that did not take place in part or entirely in Prince Edward Island. So That's true. really, and this is also one of the few adult books that she ever wrote. So this, we're really uh, hitting a different part of her canon. Yeah. But yeah, my, my understanding, and I, I read a, um, like a tour book reviewed slash uh, retrospective on this title and got a little bit of context on it. Like my understanding is that she sort of chafed at being pigeonholed, as a children's author, as she got older, and especially as she was in a protracted, like decade-long legal battle with her with with the Anne of Green Gables books publisher over criminally low rates that she was being paid. I think it was like seven cents on the dollar she was Yo, getting for every Anne book sold. Come on, it was supposed to be nineteen, which is still really low. It's, and it's Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> yeah. She did eventually win that legal battle, but yeah, I think that all kind of tired her out on the whole the the Anne thing for a little bit. Sure. So she wanted to write an adult book. I also my my other understanding is that she had to consider carefully what she wrote sometimes because her husband was like a minister and she didn't want to offend the congregation. She was she was fairly uh, religious as well. Yes, uh, throughout her her life, but. Yeah. Yeah. And we talked a little bit in the Anne episode about her marriage history because it does factor. 
Like it, it is actually, I think, related to this book specifically, and that it is this book is about a twenty-nine-year-old spinster, which is a that I don't <laughs> like using that word in general, and it feels weird to say it, and should and should have always felt weird to say it about someone who's twenty. Just a weird word to say, but. If you're if you're not watching you at home the show Dickinson on on Apple TV Plus mm. maybe because you don't want to pay for Apple TV Plus which is fine <laughs> that show is very good and has a lot of moments where it talks about how like a k- characters will be having a conversation and they'll just say something like you know celery is a luxury good in these times oh gosh <laughs> but uh, in an episode I was watching last night a couple of young men were were in a sitting room talking and, and one of them said I don't want to be the third the weird 30 year old who's not married oh my god <laughs> jeez i watched an episode of seinfeld yesterday where george was 33 he claimed mm-hmm. i wanted to turn to dust I anyway when am I, homer simpson is like 38 <laughs> I I think. Think. 37 or 38 when i'm older than homer i think mario's like moment. 25 or something anyway mario's 25 i don't i don't know if that's true i i could be wrong about that i mean he's young at heart i guess yeah it's true anyway uh about this book i want to play a game i want to play a game called old mario where it's mario but he's old the the reason i bring up montgomery's marriage history on this one of course the main character valancey uh sterling in the blue castle is a 29 year old spinster and you can come to this book and you might chafe against valancey's like her her real ambition is to like find love in her life and it doesn't have to be romantic love it it does wind up being romantic love but she's such an unloved person by her entire extended family that she's just i think that's just what she needs marriage is a way for her to have any sort of security in her life um that was certainly a thing that montgomery faced because uh, she was living in a large extended family that didn't really take care of her very well. She had to save up a lot to get herself to some education that she could go be a teacher, um, which led to her writing career, I think. Yeah. But um, yeah, there's just a lot of there, there's a lot of that in the world of this book. And um, if that is like a thing you're like, mm, I don't know about I think this book does a pretty interesting job with it anyway. Um, even if Yeah, her, her life is sort of filled with uh getting like love or getting married out of like practicalities sake rather than because she felt deeply for any particular person like there there was one there's one man who she was seeing when she was in unhappily engaged to some other guy this is before she got married to the the guy she would eventually get married to um and her family didn't approve and they split up and then he died shortly after. And then she would write about him and think about him for like decades after that. So mm. that, there's a little context for yep. like maybe not the one that got away, but maybe a little the one that got away. Yeah. Just like what what could my love life be if I didn't also have to take into consideration all these familial and societal pressures and if I could just do what I wanted Hmm. What would that yeah. be like if I could just what, do what I wanted? What would that be like? Uh, the other thing that I read, I found a good article um, at consumedbyink.ca. 
Ooh, where Naomi Canada. Naomi there is has been home of Ellen Montgomery. Oh my God, <laughs> Naomi writing there has been actually doing really a lot. Sorry, of, Canada <laughs> has been doing a lot of blogging about uh, Canadian authors, and she, she's written a number of articles about Ellen Montgomery. Um, writing about the Blue Castle, she cites. Um, a couple of different sources, including Mary Henley Rubio's biography of Montgomery, The Gift of Wings, and talks about when this book came out, it was often treated like a children's book anyway. As a result, quote, its mature subject got it banned for children in a number of places. And Montgomery was kind of annoyed. While she was censored for mentioning an unwed mother, uh, young writers like Callahan were earning praise for sympathetic treatment of down and outers and prostitutes. So like... It's a little bit of a danged if you do, danged if you don't situation where she's trying to expand her oeuvre mm-hmm. and people are treating anything else she comes out with as like, you know, give it to the same kids who like Anne, um, which is not helpful. To <laughs> it's her. sort of like those, like the sexy books that Roald Dahl wrote. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> no, thank you, please. Um, or when you you learn about all the other like ribald stuff that Shel Silverstein wrote and you're just like, well, I thought we were just going to hang out with where the sidewalk ends. And mm-hmm. no, you wrote a whole story about the devil and a lot of banging. There's a lot of banging in that devil and Billy Markham poem, I'll tell you what. Anywho, what are we talking about? This book. <laughs> so the blue castle. Tell me about this castle. Yeah. So the it's not a real Where's the castle. What's the what's the deal with the blue castle? I hear it's not blue and there's no castle. It's not blue and there's no castle. It is um <laughs> it is a mind palace of sorts. Mm-mm, sure. It is an imaginary place that our protagonist, Valancey Sterling, can go. When she needs to just like get out of her life, like she just needs somewhere to be that is not Deerwood, which is the town that she's in in Ontario, Canada. And it's a fictional town based on on like real parts of Ontario, but um, because she doesn't have a, she's just unhappy, and it seems pretty justified. <laughs> like she is. Uh, she I mean, has, she's a decrepit, unmarried 29-year-old, yeah. Craig. Like, it sounds pretty rough up Been there. there. I feel you. She is caught in the catch-22 of being treated like a child, but also because she, like, is an unmarried woman living with her family, and she's younger than everyone else, but she is also treated like this aging hag who will be a burden on everyone forever. So mm-hmm. she can't really do anything right because... She's either a baby to laugh at or an old woman to be disappointed by or Uh uh, disappointed in. Excuse me. Um, She. So the the book opens on her 29th birthday and she is kind of dealing with the grief of that and what she has never become. And she hasn't been allowed to have a life. Um, And she thinks like, what if I just told my mom that like the reason I was just crying about my life was because. You know, I'm never no one's going to love me and I'm never going to get married and get out of this situation. And she can hear her mother's voice in her head just being like, it is not maidenly to think about men. So, like, what is she supposed to do? (laughs) Is she supposed to think about men? Is she supposed to just be sad in her house all day? Like, she doesn't really have a lot of options. Um, One thing that she's not allowed to do, Andrew, in her house is is be idle. She's not allowed to be in her room by herself. And she's not 10 with a Nintendo in there. (laughs) <laughs> or anything like that. She's 
her family has some strict rules around like well if you're alone by yourself then you must be doing something sinful like you mm-hmm. must be just do a bad person Harry palms and all yes I don't think it's that explicitly but I certainly thought that I mean that's one of the things you can get up to yeah alone uh-huh. and idle uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, there's also some stuff in this book. It's certainly of the era. This is taking place in the 1920s. I've read this in other fiction in and around that generation or so where it's like reading fiction can rot your brain. Reading fiction can uh, compromise you morally. I don't think anybody's ever said that to me. Mm-hmm. But in the world of this book, that's a going concern. I mean, it's it's I think whatever the whatever is considered to be the lowbrow form of of entertainment of yes. the day like insert comic books insert tv like whatever whatever yes. is gonna rot your brain so she is taken with these non-fiction nature books by a man named john forster foster uh he's not a real author he's made up for the book but he's this like famous no one knows who famous yet no one knows who he is author in canada who writes about nature He's got like a cool book on bugs and a cool book mm-hmm. on birds, and mm-hmm. she reads them and loves them because um, they get her out of her humdrum life. So let me tell you about the Blue Castle real quick. Um, Valancey, so cowed and subdued and overridden and snubbed in real life, was wont to let herself go rather splendidly in her daydreams. Nobody in the Sterling clan or its ramifications suspected this, least of all her mother and cousin Stickles. They never knew what Valancey had. They never knew that Valancey had two homes, the ugly brick box of a home on Elm Street and the Blue Castle in Spain. She had lived spiritually in the Blue Castle ever since she could remember. I did expect there to be like some more trips to the mind version of the Blue Castle mm-hmm. than we got. Mm-hmm. She does have like the middle part of the book where she's in a pretty good romantic place. She's living on like a in a kind of small house on an island on a lake and that like becomes that takes on the significance of her blue castle as she's actually living in like a place that she enjoys and likes um but the imaginary one as she's been growing up like there's cool dudes there for her to smooch and like who love her and like they age as she ages there's like a funny line where it's like well she didn't murder them she didn't like she doesn't murder them to have a new one. They just like go away. And then there's a new imaginary dude to show up and love her. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, you could do whatever you want. Like that all sounds great. Yes. Uh, the, there's a couple beats. I'm not even sure why we need to be explaining this. Like, of course, in your imaginary <laughs> mind palace, you can make out with whoever you want. Yeah. And they are happy to be there or not be there. It's true. Depending on what you want. Swipe right. It's fine. I don't want an imaginary mind palace where I have to like deal with like hurting somebody's imaginary feelings. Yes. Or something. <laughs> like I'm not interested in that hassle, you know? No, no, thank you. The fun, there's a fun beat after she starts to become attracted to this guy, Barney, where uh, there's like a little aside where it's like, and next time she went to the Blue Castle the men or the man had acquired like this type of like hair coloring or something. So it's kind of like, she's like pulling in, you know, aspects of this guy that she's got the hots for like into the castle. It sounds like it's being communicated in a way that implies that like 
She she has influence over what happens in the Blue Castle, but it also is kind of doing its own thing it, in some ways. Yeah, it's doing its own kind of thing, and it's a different place that she can be. Um, so I talked about the Blue Castle. I talked about her love of these nature books. Um, just want to give us a rundown on her stinky family who stinks. Please tell us about the stinky family. So these are the Sterlings, um, and I already okay. hate them. I already. <laughs> Um, so her 29th birthday takes place on the 30th anniversary of her aunt and uncle Wellington's picnic, like wedding picnic. They have an anniversary picnic every year because that's like their when they got married or something. I don't know. So it means that every year on her birthday, all of her relatives show up and treat her like garbage. Fun. Yeah. Sounds fun. And it's to me, it's a mix of like the family from Home Alone like the snippier family members of like an Austin novel and then maybe some background characters from Dickens or something. Just a, just a whole cast of people to make the protagonist feel bad about themselves. You're making a face like you're thinking through the Home Alone cast. No, 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 no. I'm just trying to decide like if it's some kind of like a Wes Anderson weird family uh, situation. That's not, that might not be a bad... I think this family is perhaps supposed to be less um maybe supposed to have less empathy for any of them than you might in like a wes anderson but the yeah the i'm not, I'm not familiar right. enough with the royal tenenbaums except to know that this like a family all <laughs> you, you're just like other. oh it's a big family <laughs> it's like a big family they don't seem like like they like each other that much no. uh so we've got her mom mrs frederick sterling who's very strict and very harsh the kind of like I thankfully have never experienced this, like the kind of like you make your mom mad and she won't talk to you for three days kind of stuff like I would never endure that. Um, I mentioned Cousin Stickles, um, who is a good name. Yeah. Yeah. Middle aged family member who lives with her. She has neuritis, which is some I don't know, like an, an all encompassing anxiety. The book seems to to have and she requires lots of like patent medicines for various ailments all supplied by a guy named dr redfern um, <laughs> who i'm sure is licensed and operating completely above board <laughs> yep um there's cousin olive who is the hot one um who's closer to uh valancey's age there is cousin Georgiana, who's the one who's always showing up talking about which family member is going to kick the bucket next. There's always that family member at Thanksgiving. Super cool to talk to that person. Um, there's aunt and uncle Wellington. Aunt Wellington always brings up a spoon that, quote, went missing and reappears bankroll-like at every function. The yep. only story that this woman knows is that time that someone stole her spoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Uncle yeah, Herbert. We all, have, we all have those family stories where somebody has perceived some kind of slight <laughs> and is brought up every six months for the rest of time. I feel like uh, and long... just defines your relationship with that person for some reason. <laughs> I feel like long car rides and plane travel have, have exacerbated this. Well, I guess maybe horse travel would probably do the same. You just you have that whole trip to stew because it's your next chance, your next mm-hmm. chance to get someone and get them to mm-hmm. confess. Mm-hmm. Um, Uncle Herbert and Aunt Alberta, and then there's Uncle Benjamin. Andrew, I feel like you would enjoy Uncle Benjamin and hate him at the same time. Uncle Benjamin <laughs> is known for his jokes. His, oh, same. His kind of uh, well, I I don't know that you would love his 
like the morality of his jokes, but he tells a lot of jokes at the expense of young women, specifically ladies of marrying age. Okay. Here's an example. I mean, it sounds, sounds hilarious. Yes. First off. And he's always asking the same ones over and over, and it's kind of impolite to tell him the answer if you know it. Here's mm-hmm. an example. Mm-hmm. Why are young ladies like bad grammarians? I don't know why. They can't decline matrimony. Okay, that's a bit of a thinker. <laughs> what is the difference between a donkey and a postage stamp? I don't know. What's the difference? One you lick with a stick and the other you stick with a lick. Ha ha, he says. So this guy sounds like if he were alive today, Uncle Benjamin, his type five would mostly be about cancel culture. Unfortunately, yes. Great. Good. (laughs) Uh, And he stinks. And most of his jokes uh, that we see. Uncle Dane Cook over here. Yeah, for real. Um, most of his jokes are at Valancey's expense, and at one point she kind of is like, man, the reason these jokes suck so much is that they do make me feel bad about the truth of my sad life. <laughs> like, that's... Yeah, I mean, those know, are the... That's that's the hallmark of a good joke, is it's, you know, it's a commentary on life. It is. It's true. Um, so she is having a terrible birthday, <laughs> and... Uh, Suffice to say, she tries to get some escape. Uh, so this this um, this picnic actually doesn't happen because it's raining, and the opening sentence of the book tells us that like the rest of her life would have been different if it hadn't been raining that day and canceled the picnic. So all, everything I've said about the family members, um, she kind of runs through in her head, but we don't actually get this big reunion that would have happened. It's just it's kind of setting what the status quo is for her yeah. relationship with all of them yeah. up front before the inciting incident yes they, in the book they yes. also all call her Doss instead of her name Valancey and it's like really demeaning and she doesn't like it and they they didn't like it when she was named Valancey by like some grandmother or something and so they all just started calling her Doss and she's like hey could you not it's my birthday I'm 29 and they're like we've been calling you that long enough could you just like suck it up like don't don't call me a disc operating system yeah it's really it's not cool um Mm. so she decides to to spend her birthday she's gonna get out of the house for a bit she's gonna go get a new book from that nature guy and she's gonna go to a doctor one that's not approved by the family uh for, for to get a look at her heart palpitations that she thinks she's been having which may mm-hmm. just be the stress of turning 29 in this family, but she's not sure <laughs> what's <laughs> going on. To live for this long in this family, yes, yes. does sound pretty stressful. Um, she uh, goes and gets the book. It's a book about birds. She's into it. And then she goes to the doctor. His name is Dr. Trent. And... <laughs> <laughs> It's my favorite. They might be giants. He's inspecting her. And just as he's about to tell her what's wrong with her, he gets a phone call and he hangs up the phone, grabs his bag and runs away. And his housekeeper comes in and and she's like, listen, his son was in an auto accident in Montreal. He had to catch a train. Sorry. Goodbye. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't know what happened with the doctor. A week or so later, she gets a letter addressed to her um she thinks 
I think it's to it's to her. It's to Miss Sterling, excuse me. And it tells her that she has um, angina pectoris plus had an aneurysm and she, her heart is so weak that she has a year to live. And she shouldn't go, she should be careful going uphill. She should never run. Any severe shock will kill her. And here's some medicine that she can take uh, if she starts to have like, you know, some extra bad heart vibes. That's a super specific prognosis for medicine in 1920 whatever yeah yeah (laughs) and so she is now convinced that she has a year to live Mm -hmm. and she's kind of upset because her take on it is quote she who had never lived was about to die which is pretty rough how would you react andrew you got you got one year to live what are you gonna do i mean i live every day like i'm dying so, I wouldn't probably change anything. Okay. Okay. I I, I mean, I quit my job. Yeah, that's, that's probably that's a big one. I like quit my job because you can only do so much in that year left. I just try to get on every game show as possible. If I'm I gonna would take out six life insurance policies <laughs> and then quit my job. Yeah. Okay. Um, your your thing is more specific. Well, mine but, is yeah. But mine is also like. There's only so many other ways that I can provide for people who I care about. Then, oh, so you're going on wheel to try <laughs> to try sock away some funds, make sure that Laura can buy you a really nice coffin. Yes, because that's really what I'm only going to be able to get when I inevitably wimp out on my on my wheel of fortune turn. I'm gonna. If you told Pat Sajak that's why you were there, do you think he would like help me out? slip you a hint yeah <laughs> like, you know what i bet. Or is he too is he too much of a professional um i think he would do his best to get that really good spin before the final round okay sure he wouldn't tell me about it though he'd never let me know anyway she spends... he would tell you the letters to guess that weren't <laughs> r-s-t-l yeah any or whatever the ones he'd are he'd whisper to me that's true yeah. Um, she spends all night in bed that night going over every single deficient moment in her life with startling clarity. I've never, ever heard of anyone feeling this way. It doesn't sound like anything I've ever experienced. I've definitely never done this and lost sleep over it. Um, if you can't tell, I'm being sarcastic. No, yeah, okay, I got you. Good. Okay, great. Um, she realizes that she's never been happy. She realized that she's always demurred and, hope- and hoped that life would improve later. And so she basically just decides, I should just go for it. I should just live it up. I'm not going to tell my family about this diagnosis because they're only going to spend the last year of my life treating me like garbage and trying to cure me (laughs) so that they can have me to treat more like garbage. So far, this book is a vicious attack and I don't appreciate it. And there's also a quote from her new favorite book about birds that doesn't sound like it belongs in a bird book, but it is in the book. Tell me what it is, and then I'll tell, we can figure out what, we can invent a context for it to be in a bird book. (laughs) Fear is the original sin. Almost all the evil in the world has its origin in the fact that someone is afraid of something. It is a cold, slimy serpent coiling about you. It is horrible to live with fear, and it is of all things degrading. So, 
Okay. Most obvious thought. First thought, best thought. Birds are just afraid of everything. <laughs> <laughs> Second thought. It is from a passage trying to convince you to take up bird watching. Why so scared? Like, what are you? Uh, what are you afraid? What are you afraid of? What you're gonna find? You're afraid of these beautiful feathers and wings and beaks that you're gonna see. Don't you want to see the glory of birds? Don't you want to see a cool crest? Are you afraid you'll like the birds too much, coward? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, I think it's the second one. I think, I think it's definitely taunting the person <laughs> into picking up the hobby. This does she does like recall these words at least once or twice throughout the book as she decides to basically just like be that character in an indie movie who's just like I'm not going to live by society's rules anymore. She's Peter yeah. Parker in Spider-Man 3 after he gets the moon suit. And Yeah, she- no, that's my favorite indie movie too. Well, come on. <laughs> I can have more than one thought in a row. It's allowed. I was trying to think of other characters who get that, like, I have a new lease on life and I'm going to, or I have a very specific lease on life or understanding mm-hmm. of my mortality and I'm going to act differently. Mm-hmm. I came up with Groundhog Day, of course. Of course. And then, like, the other, the, the other archetype of this story is, like, you find out that you have a, a limited num- amount of time to live and then it totally changes your perspective and you live your life to the fullest. And then at the end of the TV episode or movie or whatever, you find out that actually the doctor was wrong and that there was like a smudge on your chart Andrew. and that you're going to be fine. But you do still have the the new perspective that you gained from almost dying. What? Sometimes the person mm-hmm. who didn't read the book Mm-hmm. Can spoil the book. <laughs> Whoops, sorry. <laughs> it's not spoiling a book when it's a like a well worn no, trope. No, no, yeah, And I will say, I can't, I can't spoil a trope of fiction. <laughs> I will also say that the the vibe of the book is such that I couldn't have seen it ending with her dying. Of course, it's not going to. It it really felt like. Uh, I think were you citing that tour article by Mary Ness the or Mari Ness the the one about it being like a fairy tale, the uh, Sleeping Beauty trapped one, in Canada. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That yeah. makes a compelling argument for a read of this book with some fairy tale sensibilities in terms of like a Rapunzel or a Cinderella or something like that. Um, I mean, certainly there are elements of it from Montgomery's perspective that seem a bit like like wish fulfillment or or yeah her life as she maybe wish she could have lived it and yes mm-hmm. or or the best version of the life she was living or yeah mm-hmm. for sure yeah um and so i think i could tell early or i felt early that this book wasn't gonna f- go through with that diagnosis <laughs> your way of course of course like not. <laughs> what i was i wasn't expecting was pretty much what you described which is Somebody got the wrong letter. She got. You find out later in the book that she got a letter that was meant to be sent to an old lady whose name is spelled very similar to hers. Did I tell you <laughs> about when we were trying to have Henry and I got a uh, a <laughs> I got my boys tested. We talked about this a little bit. We've never talked about it on the show, I don't think. I'm trying to keep it from getting too blue, but I did so I did the whole thing. Yeah. 
and I called up the I called up the office to get my results, and the lady on the other end of the phone is like, "Well, Kevin, <laughs> oh no, there's no <laughs> there's no sperm. <laughs> oh no, Kevin." And I was like, oh, "Well, first, my, I'm Andrew." And then she, and then the the news was fine after that. And then the call ended, and I was like, "I hope that." I hope that that's good news for Kevin is, is basically what the, the gist of what I oh said. Oh my God. Cause there are, up, there, there are like, if he was getting a vasectomy or something like that, that, that could have been, been good news, news for Kevin yes. Yes. if he wanted it to be. Oh. But for a minute, Ooh. when I got Kevin's results, like I, I <laughs> oh no. anyway, this is the closest thing that's happened to me to somebody telling me I have a year to live, but then telling me that the chart was wrong. Oh my God. So that's a good story. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Oh boy. Um, so okay, let's get. Wow. Um, <laughs> so Valancey decides to become the Joker, basically, and just mess with her family. Um, she she starts just acting differently around the house because she is, you know, as I said, she reasoned she's not going to tell her family about this diagnosis. It would really be a terrible year. So she's just going to do what she wants. And it involves things as small as, like, sliding down the staircase banister and, you know, waving to the more unsavory characters in town um, and, like, being friendly with them. Uh, She goes to Albert, no, Alberta and Herbert's silver wedding. It's another anniversary, I guess, or birthday party or something. That's That sounds like another Wes Anderson yeah. movie. <laughs> and this is where we actually get to see the family members all together and in action. And she is now looking at all of them and going like, oh, they're all like small and pitiable. And they're not monstrous or intimidating. Like, they're better. They're not as good as they I'm better than them is really what the conclusion she comes to. Um, mm-hmm. And she starts to push back at them. She makes Uncle Benjamin feel real sad when he asks her one of his riddles. And he's like, here's the answer. Your riddles suck. You have, you've been using the same riddle my whole life. They're all bad and you never shut up. <laughs> um, and she goes around the table kind of one by one firing back at people. And, and nobody really knows what to do with her. And it all boils down to... Um, Stories going around about this guy named Barney Snaith, who... That's a pretty good name. It's a great name. He's been in town for a few years, and there's a rumor, uh, rumor has it, that he got, uh, I think her name is Sicily. She's referred to as Sissy, C-I-S-S-Y. Sissy Gay uh, was impregnated, uh, had the child out of wedlock... The child passed away, and now Sissy is, like, deathly ill and could die any time in the next two years. And her father, Roaring Abel Gay, is, like... The, <laughs> no, he, no, it's not. He is, that must be a misprint. Nope. He is the town drunkard. He's also, like, a fiddler. When you finally get to meet him, he is a, a sad but good dude. Um, and he has his troubles. And... Um, his wife is passed away, and there's rumors that maybe he killed her. Who knows? But I don't think that they're, they're true. And at this point, uh, because she's got her one-year-to-live powers, Valancey is like, <laughs> how dare you gossip about these people that you refuse to offer help to? How do you know that they did anything? 
there's all sorts of stories about this guy, Barney Snaith. And she ends up saying, you know, she actually names the thing that it's like, if you think he's the father of Cecily's uh, child, then he isn't. It's a wicked lie. And the fact that she would even like utter those words out loud is scandalous. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And then she says, as for Barney Snaith, the only crime he has been guilty of is living to himself and minding his own business. He can, it seems, get along without you, which is an unpardonable sin, of course, in your little snobocracy. Bang. Snobocracy is a is an interesting form of government. Yes. To me. <laughs> uh, what if Mean Girls was a was a city state? Um and so she runs out and leaves them behind and they're like, oh, my God, she's going crazy. Like she is losing her mind. That's the only way that they can reconcile this. Um, and there are a couple chapters where we see it from her, from their perspective, like gossiping about what she has said to them as she has kind of stormed out of their life. Um, the middle part of the book is her moving in as the caretaker for Sissy and Abel. And like becoming their housemaid. Um, she knew Sissy when they were younger and in school. So she reconnects with a friend. She gets to know this older Abel guy. Turns out he's not as bad as you think. And she becomes friends with Barney Snaith, um, who just likes doing good things for those people. And they start to develop a romantic relationship. Um, Sissy spills the beans on what actually happened to her. It was not Barney. And then Sissy passes away. And it's like a lovely well, little... That's, that's convenient of her. Yeah, well... <laughs> Thank you, Sissy. Um, and so the, the back half of the book is like, well, now that this job is over, is she going to go back to her family? No. She asks Barney to marry her. because, okay. she, And she's like, listen, dude, I've got a year to live. I can't go back to my family we seem to like each other. Will you do me a solid and marry me? Mm-hmm. And he's like, totally. And they they move to his weird little lake cabin and they have a great time. It is kind of weird, Andrew, that he does have like a shed that she's not allowed to go in. And he <laughs> and they do refer to it as Bluebeard's Castle, like the fairy tale. I, he, uh, and she's like, it's I all good, like man. I don't like him being in on a weird secret. Like, you know what's in the weird secret shed. You don't get to call it Bluebeard's Castle. Like, that's what I get to call it because you won't <laughs> let me go in there. They, they come to that name together. They share that. But I, uh, still, still not great. Um, no, I, I still, I, I, I uh, am not changing my viewpoint on this. <laughs> Fair one. enough. I, that's okay. Uh, and she's like, but she's okay with it because they're good. They're keeping good company. Um and she again thinks she only has a year to live. So what? Who cares what he does in the shed? <laughs> Whatever. I mean, sure. They spend all their nights together, going on sick like boat trips around the lake, or like walking through the woods. She is living her best life. And I guess I'd never considered that. Is that doesn't get covered as part of the trope? Is like. What do other people do to you if they only think you have a year to live? Yeah. <laughs> and and her fear is that like the society that and the family that she's grown up in would treat her terribly and, and make mm-hmm. her life bad. And like, here's mm-hmm. a guy who just wants who's just happy to spend some time with her. And he's just all he wants is one secret shed, which is not that much to ask, really. <laughs> right. 
really isn't. It's perfectly reasonable to have one secret shed. <laughs> it's true. Um, their their relationship comes to a head. They have one. They go for a walk. They have a crisis moment where her shoe gets caught in a train track, and she almost dies, and he almost dies, saving her. And they each have a light bulb moment. Her thought is, oh, my God, my heart should have exploded and I should have died. Mm-hmm. Remember, the doctor's note said. No, I do. I do remember this. OK, I'm just looking to make sure the light bulbs had been invented. Yeah. At the time. Well, they don't say light bulb moment. I'm saying light bulb moment. No, I know. I'm just. Uh, yeah. You know, no, you're safe. All right. You're thank safe. you. Thank you. Um, his light bulb moment, which we find out about li- a little bit later in the book, is that he can't live without her. But she thinks that he realized that she should have died, and she is now projecting that he is going to feel trapped with her, that he probably only signed up for a year, and that because her heart didn't explode when she almost got hit by a train, that he's going to think that she tricked him. Mm -hmm. So she decides she has to run away this is complicated by the fact that she does get the letter explaining that she's not gonna die she does find out some stuff about his backstory that is very silly and contrived and i won't even go into it except that what he's doing in the shed ties up a whole bunch of loose ends in this book (laughs) it makes her love him more it makes her scared that uh, he's gonna think she's a gold digger because mm-hmm. everybody thinks he's poor. He's not poor. He's secret rich. But for oh, is that what he has in the shed? Is a big pile of money? Um, a big bunch of sacks, burlap sacks with dollar signs on them. He has the means to make big. He's not printing money, but he the tool whatever he does to make his money, which I won't spoil, uh, is in that shed. And she okay. finds out, and it, it she does love it, but now. He has a- leprechaun who he has, he has kidnapped and imprisoned and it is in the shit saw style hooked up to the pipes in the shed and he just goes in and gets gold out of it whenever he wants i dig it that's what yes that's that's the only option thank you mm-hmm. why do you keep spoiling this book andrew i'm really sorry i just am too good at guessing what's going on um and then the last scene is them reuniting him confessing that what he really discovered at the train tracks was not that she was going to die. He doesn't care. It's that he really loved her. And they go off on like a sick honeymoon. Um, And her family like doesn't really know what to make of what's happening. I think Uncle Benjamin comes around first. Um, But ultimately... He's funny. He's got a sense of humor. So he's, you know, he's... (laughs) No. (laughs) No. Sorry, I can't do it. No, I can't. Um... But it, usually it, the, the best that happens to the wicked family in this sort of scenario is that they watch sort of puzzled as the object of their derision rides off into the sunset to have a happy life forever. That's pretty much exactly what happens. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, so the couple of things that strike me about uh, the book, aside from just like the interesting, I had a fun time reading it. Like it was a fun read. I liked um Valancey as a character it was kind of interesting to see this person who describes herself multiple times as a non-entity like come into her own and decide what type of life she enjoys and both discover and decide it which is like a fun thing to see well and that's one of the the 
fun things about sort of a tropey book yeah. is to see, okay, I I know what is going to happen because I know how this story works, but what are the details going to be like? Yes. And you can have fun filling that in without needing to worry too much about what is ultimately going to happen because you kind of already know. Yeah, for sure. For yeah. sure. Um, there is a lot in this book because I think, well, let me work backwards. The book is a lot about gossip and manners and how focusing on both appearances literally and appearances figuratively cause harm and but like keeping up appearances like the family's obsession with social roles and conventional social mobility is what like leads to the erasure of her personhood in the first place Mm -hmm. um the whole like uh, the pregnancy thing with Sissy leading to her becoming a pariah, even though it's a very private issue of hers, becoming this like public scandal that cuts off her family from the community. Um, all I'll say about Barney Snape's past is that it's related to his family's legacy and how people have responded to it. Um, so he is he has sought out a life for himself that is like truer i guess in like a henry thoreau sense like getting to the (laughs) getting to the like the real crux of what it is to be alive Mm -hmm. um and sometimes montgomery shifts the focus as i said from away from valancey and actually to her family so that we can actually see how the gossip works and how destructive it is and how it is actually preventing them from helping her or seeing her for who she is um to that end, there's a lot in this book that is the description of people, and there's a lot of the almost Dickensian, but also, like, you mentioned Doll earlier. We've talked about Doll books that do this, Rolled Doll, that is, where yes, no, yeah, where I mean. people's physical descriptions carry a lot of weight for how we feel about them yes. morality-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, and... So, you know, I think overall thematically she's going for a like a slightly more nuanced don't judge a book by its cover thing. It's it's deeper than that a little bit, um, but it also results in some weird stuff, some weird moments to read. So <laughs> early in the book, Valancey is looking at herself in the mirror and she doesn't like what she sees. So I'm just going to I'm going to read through this whole part and you just tell me the part that you think is a little uh, too far. OK. Valancey saw straight black hair, short and thin, always lusterless, despite the fact that she gave it 100 strokes of the brush, neither neither more nor less every night of her life and faithfully rubbed red ferns hair vigor into the roots more lusterless than ever in its morning roughness fine straight black brows and nose she had always felt was much too small even for her small three-cornered white face a small pale mouth that always fell open a trifle over little pointed white teeth a figure thin and black flat-breasted rather below the average height she had somehow escaped the family high cheekbones and her dark brown eyes too soft and shadowy to be black had a slant that was almost oriental Apart from her eyes, she was neither pretty nor ugly, just insignificant looking, she concluded bitterly. Is it the racist part? Yeah, (laughs) it's the racist part that reflects bad on everyone in this book. (laughs) Sure. And it's it's just it's a thing that gets the the slants get brought up a number of times. And it's just like, what are we doing here? Why are we doing this? Yeah. Um, And then. You also get like her description of cousin Stickles, but cousin Stickles, because she's like her my her she's like my mom is pretty 
attractive, whatever. But Cousin Stickles, Cousin Stickles had once been. Des- Let me tell you about Cousin Stickles. <laughs> Cousin Stickles had once been desirable in some man's eyes. Valency felt Oof. that Cousin Stickles, with her broad, flat, wrinkled face, a mole right on the end of her dumpy nose, bristling hairs on her chin, wrinkled yellow neck, pale protruding eyes, and thin puckered mouth, had yet this advantage over her: over her, the right to look down on her. Even yet, Cous- Cousin Stickles was necessary to her mom, to Mrs. Frederick. Um, oh, Cousin Stickles. Just like some real hate the bad people and the people that feel bad about themselves have very undesirable. And I'm going to like point out how undesirable they think they are physical qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, I don't know. That's a thing that I f- a lot of fiction I enjoy lately has very much moved on from. <laughs> um it's, cer- it's like long, unflattering descriptions of, of people's external shortcomings. Yeah, and as a way to to f- do some shorthand for like how we feel about them as, a, yeah, as yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then we get the flip side, though, Andrew, with our boy Barney Snaith. Everyone knew that he was an escaped convict and a defaulting bank clerk and a murderer in hiding. And an infidel and an, an illegitimate son of old Roaring Able Gay and the father of Roaring Able's illegitimate grandchild and a counterfeiter and a forger and a few other awful things. But still, Valency didn't believe he was bad. Uh, nobody with a smile like that could be bad no matter what he had done. She later says that... See, that also is not... <laughs> Not great. Necessarily. You can have positive things that are also bad. Like people who smiled good can do bad stuff. She even says later, she's like, man, his smile though, maybe he murdered somebody, but he probably never betrayed anyone. That's what she really that's the line in the sand that she draws. I think by the time you're thinking, you know, he probably never betrayed anybody. This you probably probably he did. In some small way. I don't know. Yeah. We're thinking Maybe about. Maybe he just he said he was going to go pick somebody up at the airport and he didn't, and that was his betrayal. <laughs> that is a betrayal. Ultimately, I like I like Barney. I think he's an interesting character, but certainly the way that the book treats him, you got to think about that stuff. Um, yeah, even I mean, even with his his leprechaun torture shed, he sounds like an all right guy. Yeah, you know, he's got a nice smile, man. Makes up for it. Mm-hmm. So I I share that stuff because it is like one of the major qualities of the prose that I didn't love, but didn't stop me from enjoying the rest of the text, which was... Yeah, I mean, it's it's mostly when we talk about this, when we talk about the source stuff, sometimes it's, it's, sometimes it's just like, this book came out in 1920-whatever. Tell me in what way that is the most obvious. Yep, yep. <laughs> and that, that happens to be the way yes. in this case. Yeah. yeah. Um. But it was a fun read. Otherwise, and I think that if folks are interested in Montgomery, if they've read a bunch of Anne or, you know, and they haven't read this one, they'll probably enjoy it. They will probably find some stuff that they like. Um, and it is interesting, as we talked about at the top of the show, to see what she's doing in what she considers to be a more adult space. Mm-hmm. Um, just the types of stuff that she's writing about. So. We've got just a few minutes left in this podcast, Andrew. What will you do with the time that we have left? Now, th- I mean, I, I'm going to use it to tell you that our podcast has no strictly set runtime and that we can end it whenever we need to based on the subject matter that we're talking about. 
Let me. Oh, what I, do you want to tell me about? Did you have a bit prepared? You, you're, you have the the your eyes have the glow of a man with a bit. No, I the Ooh. bit the bit was there being limited time left. Mm. And look how much of it we've burned with this. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Oh, darn. Send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. Tell us about your favorite Anne Green Gables story or your favorite thing about Canada. Those are things I love to read about. Send us uh, notes. I always like getting emails from people who are like, this time when you guys talked about Canada, you didn't do that bad a job. We got some (laughs) about our... uh, God, the episode where we talked about Quebec a bunch. Yeah. Where we did like kind of okay. Yeah. I, I take some pride in that. That's, I know a little bit about Canada. That That is the additive effect of our readers over the years, I think, <laughs> supporting mm-hmm. us, pushing us to those achievements. Mm-hmm. I mean, as Americans, we can only be expected <laughs> to <laughs> figure out so many things about Canada. That's but we, true. We're, you know, we're, we're working on it. Um, hit us up with your other favorite Canada facts, Facebook and Twitter.com slash overdue pod thanks to faith hayden sean stella robert lana emily jesse jen and many more for reaching out over social media this past week we did have a bunch of questions for our patreon q a episode that'll go up at the end of this week thanks to nick larangis who composed our theme song andrew folks want to know more about the show where should they go they should go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website up there we have links to apple google our rss feed always you can subscribe to the show get new episodes when they drop Uh, We've got a Patreon page, patreon.com slash overdue pod. Get early access to bonus episodes, including our current long read project, which is called Jagged Little Mill. And it's about uh, Miguel de Cervantes' Don Quixote, uh, as translated by Edith Grossman. I have a new episode of that coming out for patrons soon and then coming out to all of you uh, sometime later in March. Craig, do you have the March schedule pulled up? Uh, I do. To tell the folks about. We just read The Blue Castle by Ella Montgomery. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne. Then we'll hit up The Crossover by Kwame Alexander. Then On a Pale Horse by Pierce Anthony. That's the first book in the Incantations of Immortality series. And right out of the month with Ash by Melinda Lowe. And then, yeah, we'll get you'll get our first two uh, Jagged Little Mill episodes on the main feed at the end of this month. And as I mentioned earlier, our fourth Q&A episode should hit the main feed this Friday if you're listening to this as it comes out. It was a good time. If you want to know the answer to hard-hitting questions like what pasta shape is best, (laughs) that is the episode where we finally get to that one. (laughs) At long last. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Until we talk to you next week, please try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.